1: This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. In
0: 1973, five-year-old Tiffany was recovering from the chickenpox. Per doctor's orders, her mother, Terry, probably soaked her in an oatmeal bath with lukewarm water for hours. Then she likely used a cotton ball to gently rub calamine lotion on every blister.
1: She even tucked Tiffany into a bed with fresh sheets and pillowcases every night to stop the infection from spreading.
0: One evening, after sleeping for a couple of hours, Tiffany woke and ran into the bathroom to vomit violently and endlessly for hours. In between bouts... She likely wept and clutched her raw throat, which burned from the acidity of her stomach contents.
1: The next morning, Tiffany acted strangely. She moved around the house like a zombie, disoriented. Terry immediately called the doctor, who prescribed medicine for vomiting. But it didn't help. Tiffany worsened, becoming unresponsive.
0: Again, Terry called the pediatrician, who this time agreed to see Tiffany in person. Terry and her husband Fred drove to a community clinic in Columbus, Ohio. After an examination, the doctor transferred Tiffany to a better equipped hospital three and a half hours away. En route to the emergency room, Tiffany slipped into a coma and died. Her parents could only watch helplessly.
1: As Fred and Terry drove back home that day without their daughter, anger bubbled in their chests what had just happened, and why couldn't anyone tell them what had killed Tiffany?
0: When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game, with life-or-death stakes. This is
1: Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly.
0: And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them.
1: As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Then, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer.
0: You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar.
1: At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
0: This week, we're taking a one-episode look at Rye's syndrome, a mysterious disease that killed hundreds of children in the 1960s and 70s. This week, we'll explore how doctors discovered this ailment and then piece together its causes and treatments.
1: Starting in 1951, Rafe Douglas Kenneth Rye, a practicing doctor at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Sydney, began to notice a growing threat. It started with just a few cases. Frantic parents would arrive at his hospital with sick children who displayed the most bizarre
0: symptoms. Some would forcefully vomit for hours until painful convulsions overtook them. Others were so confused they couldn't articulate clear sentences. The majority were comatose upon arrival. But no matter the state they arrived in, It always ended the same. The child would slip into a coma and inevitably die.
1: The parents needed answers that Rye couldn't provide. How did this tragedy happen? What should they tell their families? The doctor was baffled. None of this made sense.
0: He found his first clues during the victim's autopsies. In spite of their different symptoms, they all had significant swelling of the brain and fatty livers. Otherwise, they were completely healthy with no signs of infection. The inflammation
1: or swelling of the brain is known as encephalitis. The most common cause is a virus such as measles, smallpox, herpes, or West Nile. The body's attempt to fight off the infection leads to brain swelling.
0: Encephalitis generally begins with fever and headache. The symptoms rapidly worsen, leading to seizures, confusion, drowsiness, loss of consciousness, and even coma, all of which were similar to the children's strange symptoms.
1: But when Rye looked for additional signs of infection from viruses, fungi, and even parasites in his patients, he found nothing. And even if he had identified a culprit, it wouldn't explain the
0: fatty livers. Fatty livers can be harmless or extremely dangerous. They might be caused by overeating or heavy drinking, but a lifestyle change can address the condition relatively quickly. However, the risk is greater if it's caused by liver dysfunction. To test for the latter,
1: Rye measured ammonia levels in his patients. Ammonia is a waste product created when the body digests protein. In a healthy digestive system, ammonia will be processed in the liver and then passed as urine. If ammonia remains in a person's body, this is a sign of a malfunctioning liver and the byproduct can cause other problems when it's not properly expelled.
0: Elevated ammonia levels can affect the brain, leading to seizures, confusion, breathing trouble, and coma, all of which the patients had exhibited. And when Rai received the test results, He noted the increased ammonia levels, exactly what he'd expected. But that confirmation still left him with little understanding of the condition's root causes and no idea how to treat it.
1: As time passed, Rye saw more and more cases of this mysterious ailment. It was becoming all the more important that he find a cure, and quickly. So he shared his findings and frustrations with his colleagues, doctors Graham Morgan and James Barral. Together, they set out to publish a paper on this unknown condition which they dubbed RISE Syndrome.
0: They pulled charts for every suspected case from the past 12 years. They compiled data on the 21 patients they identified, all between five months and eight years old. The doctors cross-referenced each patient's state upon check-in, lab tests, and autopsy results. But to see the complete picture, they would need the complete history on each child from before they'd gotten sick. At their request, the local health department interviewed the families for more details. The first thing the researchers noticed was that the patients were all recovering from a mild illness, such as influenza. The flu is easy to catch, When an infected person sneezes or
1: coughs, the virus travels through the air until it's inhaled or lands on an object. A person who is exposed may begin coughing and sneezing or experience congestion or a runny nose. Treatment includes rest, staying hydrated, and popping a Tylenol or aspirin for headache relief.
0: There are four types of the flu virus, A, B, C, and D. Influenza viruses A and B are the most prevalent and are responsible for flu season each year. Most cases of Rye's syndrome were preceded by influenza B.
1: Rise syndrome was thought to have a season winter to spring, the same period as flu season. The fact that the conditions both occurred at the same time of year further solidified the link between RiSE syndrome and influenza.
0: The first symptoms of Rye's syndrome usually appeared after the flu seemed to be over, within three days or at most a week. Then the patient began to experience severe vomiting.
1: When a bacterial or viral infection irritates the lining of the stomach or GI tract, eventually the stomach will purge. But although his patients vomited excessively, Rye could not find evidence of infection in the autopsy. Something else
0: was triggering the regurgitations. Excessive vomiting can exhaust a person. In addition, the infected individual cannot retain vitamins or minerals from their food and drink, leaving them dehydrated and possibly suffering from nutrient deficiency. Dehydration is especially dangerous for infants and children with smaller body mass, as they have less fluids stored in their fat and muscles to sustain themselves.
1: In addition to vomiting, half of the patients developed what their researchers called wild delirium. With clenched hands, the children would scream and hit their parents and doctors, they would become extremely irritated and restless, moving suddenly and violently with flexed elbows, extended legs, and clenched hands. These were all signs of brain inflammation or swelling of the brain.
0: 80% suffered from seizures that caused them to arch their backs painfully. The majority of these children died. The entire process, from simple flu to sudden death, was horrifying. Helpless parents watched while their children grew confused, vomited, and screamed before falling into comas and never waking again.
1: Rye, Morgan, and Burrell's paper was the first to identify the new syndrome. Their 1963 article, published in The Lancet, detailed the symptoms but contained few hints about what caused the illness.
0: Meanwhile, at this same time, a medical investigator named George Johnson was noticing a concerning number of child deaths in North Carolina. Johnson worked for the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which today is called the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. There was no way for Johnson to know at the time, but he too was investigating Rye's syndrome.
1: While Rye's research was ongoing, Johnson was given 10 different reports of children who had died from encephalitis. His job was to find out what was causing the inflammation. However, his investigations only turned up even more patients. All of their symptoms were the same. The children would vomit for hours, lose consciousness, and die. All of their autopsies revealed swelling of the brain and fatty, engorged livers. And yet, none showed any other signs of infection.
0: After three months spent investigating 16 cases, Johnson presented his findings to a board of scientists. And he was criticized harshly. He struggled to answer many of their questions because he, like Rye, hadn't discovered the cause of this mysterious disease. No one had.
1: Even worse, Rye's syndrome seemed to be getting more common. More and more cases were reported, and 80% ended in
0: death. By the end of the 1960s, reports poured in from all over the world. Same symptoms, violent vomiting, brain dysfunction, seizure, coma, and death. Same autopsy results, swelling of the brain, fatty liver with no indication of infection.
1: Doctors knew Rye's syndrome existed, but still had no clue how to treat it or what caused it. And while they scratched their heads, children were dying.
0: Up next, a new groundbreaking treatment gives patients a fighting chance. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night.
1: A new disease haunted parents in the 1950s and 60s. Dr. R.D.K. Rye identified its symptoms. All of the afflicted children were recovering from a viral infection, such as the flu. They would grow unresponsive, slip into a coma, and die with a fatty liver and swollen brain.
0: With more research, doctors became familiar with Rye's syndrome, although they still had no idea how to treat it. But thanks to media coverage, parents learned about the disease and they began to seek out treatment at the first sign of illness. For the first time, doctors were able to see the cases earlier, before it progressed to its final stages. This was an opportunity to map out a timeline for this confusing disease.
1: Dr. Frederick Lovejoy led a group of physicians from Boston to try to clarify how RISE syndrome progressed. They conducted a study of 40 patients over a three-year period, between 1968 and 1971.
0: A decade after the first report on Rye's syndrome, Lubjoy's study identified the condition's five distinct stages. In his publication, he detailed case studies on two young women, patient one and patient two.
1: He wrote, Patient 1, aged 15 years old, was well until four days prior to admission when she developed a common cold and a sore throat. One day prior to admission, she complained of being sleepy, began to vomit, and
0: was treated with compazine. Compazine, or prochlorperazine, is an antipsychotic drug used to treat anxiety and to control severe nausea and vomiting. It's unclear why Lovejoy chose this medication. Regardless of the treatment, Lovejoy knew his patient had entered the first stage of Rye Syndrome.
1: Stage 1 began with persistent, copious vomiting. It was violent, painful, and continuous. Patients purged for hours, expelling food, fluids, and in most cases, blood it's likely that their throats were worn raw from the acid damage to the esophagus. Dehydration would result, causing dry mouth, fatigue, headaches, and confusion.
0: The second subject's condition began differently. Lovejoy explained, patient two, aged three years old, was in good health until one week prior to admission, at which time symptoms of an upper respiratory tract infection occurred. She was treated with aspirin, decongestants, given orally, and sedatives. She was examined in the emergency room one day prior to admission, where she was noted to be lethargic and difficult to arouse.
1: As patients' bodies redirected all of their energy into fighting infection, the child grew weaker. Some Rise Syndrome patients weren't able to stand up without support.
0: Six out of 40 patients recovered from stage one, but Lovejoy didn't know why. They'd received identical treatment to the other 34, who progressed to the next stages. Stage two included signs of stupor, disorientation, and delirium.
1: Delirium can present as a reduced awareness of one's surroundings. The child cannot focus on a topic or is withdrawn. They may also ramble or have difficulty speaking or recalling words.
0: The most severe symptoms include changes in behavior, such as hallucinations or restlessness, agitation, or combative behavior. Delirium can also reverse a child's night-day sleep-wake cycle.
1: These symptoms may have been attributed to the swelling of the brain, which increases pressure inside the skull this intracranial tension can prevent blood from flowing, which deprives the brain of the oxygen it needs to function.
0: This could also explain another stage two signifier, hyperreflexia, a state in which the reflexes are overreactive or over-responsive.
1: Eventually, these symptoms gave way to stage three, in which patients exhibited decorticate posture. This meant the child was stiff with bent arms, clenched fists and legs held straight out, rigid. This type of posture often indicates severe brain damage.
0: Some children at this stage remained lucid. Their eyes responded to light, but most fell into a coma. Scientists still don't understand exactly how the human consciousness works while in a coma, but they believe the brain is operating at its lowest activity level. In stage four, the
1: coma deepened. Patients' eyes no longer responded to light, but had large, fixed pupils. The two survivors of Stage 4 in Lovejoy's case study both suffered from permanent brain damage.
0: Stage 5 brought seizures, loss of reflexes, respiratory arrest, and finally, death. No patients survived Stage 5.
1: But Lovejoy's observations offered hope. Finally, doctors had a framework to understand the progression of the disease. It was an important first step in identifying Rye's syndrome's cause, and from there, finding a cure.
0: In the 1970s, doctors hypothesized that a prior infection seemed to be the key. But the relationship between the two wasn't clear. Almost all of the patients were sick with the flu or chickenpox, then seemed to recover before they developed Rye's syndrome.
1: Adding to the confusion, in the United States, Rye's syndrome would appear in clusters, briefly spiking in certain geographic regions before returning to its normal rates.
0: If the root cause was influenza, the clusters made sense. The flu was highly contagious, therefore the illness would spread through communities. So naturally, rise would spread in the same clusters. But this theory was quickly challenged.
1: If influenza caused Rye's syndrome, why didn't every child that contracted the flu develop the condition? There had to be some other factor.
0: Some researchers believe that pollution or foodborne illness was the culprit. Either of these could also account for the clusters. Contaminated air, water, or food would be limited to a certain region.
1: This theory was also cast aside. If environmental factors caused Rye's syndrome, why didn't more people have the disease? And why weren't adults
0: getting sick? To complicate matters further, doctors had varying levels of understanding of the condition. While several groundbreaking reports illuminated aspects of this disease, the information wasn't always widely disseminated. And as different physicians acted under different assumptions, they uncovered different, at times seemingly contradictory, trends.
1: The way Rice syndrome was diagnosed and treated largely differed by region. States like Michigan seemed to have more cases, but their higher numbers may have been due to their more effective reporting.
0: Often, treatment was focused largely on stopping the swelling of the brain, and rightly so, as brain inflammation could lead to a speedy death.
1: Some doctors removed portions of their patients' skulls. This created room for the swelling brain and also gave physicians a closer look so they could monitor the inflammation. Sometimes they even injected medicine directly into the brain to reduce the swelling.
0: This surgery was called a decompressive craniectomy, and it was very risky at the time. But parents and doctors alike were desperate. If they didn't take the gamble, the patients were likely to die anyway.
1: As an alternative, some physicians hypothesized that liver dysfunction caused inflammation of the brain. They tried treating the liver to prevent
0: the condition's progression. In the mid-1970s, new liver disease treatments were being discovered. Exchange transfusions had become popular for newborn babies with jaundice, a blood disorder often caused by a dysfunctional liver. If the organ wasn't functioning properly, a yellow chemical called bilirubin would build up, turning the baby's skin and eyes yellow.
1: An exchange transfusion was like a more extreme version of a normal blood transfusion. Doctors would remove toxic blood filled with bilirubin and replace it with clean blood from a donor. And if Rye's syndrome was caused by a similar sort of liver failure, perhaps this treatment would cure it as well.
0: During a 1974 epidemic, 26 cases of Rye's syndrome were successfully treated in Cincinnati via exchange transfusions. The procedure was life-changing, but painful. Small tubes, called catheters, were inserted directly into a patient's healthy vein. The child's blood was steadily withdrawn in small amounts and replaced with equal amounts of pre-warmed donor blood. This process lasted between one and a half to three hours.
1: It was a small price to pay to save a life, but it was still painful and difficult. Many patients were too young to fully understand why they had to undergo the torturous procedure.
0: Luckily, some doctors theorized there was a better way to address Rye's syndrome. Take, for example, the case of two-and-a-half-year-old Mark A. Largent. In the early 1970s, Mark's mother took him to visit his grandparents in New York State, where out of nowhere he developed diarrhea, followed by violent vomiting that lasted throughout the night. In the morning, his temperature went through the roof, and he was barely conscious. The pediatrician that saw him admitted that she couldn't help Mark. He had a rare condition that very few doctors knew how to treat, so she referred them to a hospital in Ogdensburg.
1: They drove 40 miles to be greeted by Dr. Bernard Musselman at the emergency room door. Mark was conscious but hallucinating, picking imaginary things out of the air. Musselman told Mark's mother that he had RISE syndrome, a 50-50 chance of survival, and if he lived, he would likely suffer brain and liver damage.
0: Rather than attempt a blood exchange transfusion, Musselman took the simple route and immediately hooked Mark up to an IV to replenish his fluids. The doctor monitored his blood levels closely to make sure he was staying hydrated.
1: That afternoon, Mark slipped into a coma. His mother and father stayed by his side throughout the night. But the next morning, Mark's condition stabilized. On the third day, he woke up and ate a sloppy joe. On the fourth, he went home with only a scar from the IV line.
0: While Mark's story had a happy ending, it contradicted everything doctors thought they knew about Rye's syndrome. Mark was treated with fluids only fluids, no blood exchanges, cranial surgeries or medications. Was he an outlier or was there more to learn about Rye's syndrome? Further
1: complicating matters, Mark wasn't recovering from any sickness when his symptoms began. He went from perfectly healthy to stage one Rye's syndrome with no prior infection. This led some researchers to wonder if maybe Rye's syndrome wasn't caused by infection at all but by toxins
0: or poisons. Toxins in these cases are unnatural chemicals added to the environment. They can disrupt the respiratory system, resulting in irritation, coughing or choking. They are most dangerous to small children as they have less body mass to absorb foreign substances.
1: In addition, their organs haven't matured and are therefore more susceptible to damage. Worst of all, children often lack a fully developed blood-brain barrier, the structure in the central nervous system that prevents the passage of chemicals between the bloodstream and the neural tissue.
0: The effects of toxin exposure were very similar to the symptoms of Rye syndrome. Toxicity causes nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea.
1: To support this theory, Two researchers from Ireland, John Glasgow and J.A.J. J. Ferris, reported their findings on a four-year-old girl who died of Rice syndrome. During autopsy, they found moderate swelling of the brain, an enlarged yellow liver, and swollen kidneys. These were expected in a rice syndrome fatality. What wasn't expected were the paint thinners in this four-year-old's stomach.
0: After speaking with her parents, Glasgow and Ferris learned there were several automobile paint shops by the family's home. A full toxicology report matched the paint thinner found in her stomach to one used at a nearby business. Based on this evidence, Glasgow and Ferris believed that Rys syndrome was caused by ingesting poisonous toxins, not a bacterial or viral infection.
1: Further investigation revealed that back in the 60s, Dr. Martin Randolph, head of pathology at Danbury Hospital, had reported a similar case. An eight-year-old boy had died of Rye's syndrome 24 hours after admittance. Randolph's toxicology report revealed small amounts of alcohol in his
0: digestive system. Glasgow and Ferris weren't the first to hypothesize that toxins were to blame. Rye and his colleagues had originally hinted at the theory, but they dismissed it in favor of a different hypothesis. More specifically, they had noted similarities between Rye's syndrome and the Jamaican vomiting sickness.
1: The Jamaican vomiting sickness was first identified in 1875. The symptoms included severe vomiting followed by convulsion, coma, and death, Children between 2 and 10 years old were the most susceptible to this
0: disease. The mortality rate was about 80% in 1952, before its cause was known. Autopsies revealed deposits of fat on the liver, kidneys, and other organs.
1: The similarities to Rice syndrome were undeniable, but Jamaican vomiting sickness was caused by the ingestion of an unripe ackee fruit, a staple in Caribbean cuisine, When ripe and cooked, the fruit is non-toxic. However, the unripe ackee contains hypoglycin A, an unusual amino acid that can be deadly when ingested.
0: For years, doctors compared Rye's syndrome to the Jamaican vomiting disease thanks to their similar symptoms. But when they analyzed urine samples from five Rye's syndrome patients in the New Haven area, They didn't detect any toxic acids, as one would expect from the Jamaican disease. The evidence was conclusive.
1: Despite superficial similarities, the two syndromes had different
0: causes. Which left doctors with few leads. Thanks to blood exchange transfusions, they could treat their patients with relative success, but they still had little understanding of the elusive condition. And without more information, they couldn't avoid painful procedures or the serious risks of permanent liver and brain damage. The investigation had to continue.
1: Up next, doctors find the key to make Rye's syndrome disappear forever. Now, back to the story. ¶¶
0: In the early 1970s, doctors had found one life-saving treatment for deadly rise syndrome, a lengthy, painful blood exchange transfusion. But Dr. Bernard Musselman turned common knowledge on its head when he successfully treated a -a two-and-a-half-year-old patient with only fluid in IVs. This spurred other researchers to posit and then disprove several possible causes of the condition. Karen
1: Starko of the Epidemic Intelligence Service, now known as the CDC, conducted a small study in Phoenix, Arizona in December 1978. She identified seven children who had been hospitalized with Rye's syndrome. All of the patients had influenza A
0: prior to developing the more dangerous condition. Starko knew that 95% of all children with RISE syndrome were first sick with an ailment like the flu or chickenpox. Therefore, she was convinced the cause lay between the onset of the flu and the start of the severe vomiting. This was a small window of time between three to five days. What happened during this narrow period to make a mild illness morph into a deadly disease? Starco examined two groups.
1: The first were the parents of children who developed Rye's syndrome. The second were a control group, the parents of 16 children who had only contracted the flu.
0: She questioned each set of parents vigorously. Were there pets in the home? Was the child vaccinated? What medication did they give their child during their illness?
1: The groups had many similarities. All the children were healthy before they got the flu. All lived in the same area. Many even went to the same school.
0: The most significant difference between the two groups was aspirin. The children that had contracted Rye syndrome had taken aspirin more frequently and in higher doses than those who had not. Many of the latter were given Tylenol instead.
1: In the 1960s and 70s, aspirin was the most widely used over-the-counter drug to relieve pain and reduce fever. Bayer had developed chewable flavored aspirin tablets just for kids. They were sometimes called candy aspirin because they were so good.
0: It was in every home believed to be the safest and least expensive pain reliever on the marketplace.
1: The active ingredient in aspirin is salicylic acid, which is found in willow bark and has been used for thousands of years to relieve pain and
0: reduce fevers. In 1979, Starco wrote to the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Washington to inquire if they had any evidence linking salicylate poisoning and Rye syndrome. They responded with 11 cases of salicylate overdose or poisoning in adolescents. All 11 cases presented deposits of fat in the liver, one of the distinguishing signs of RISE syndrome.
1: Armed with this data, Starco submitted a paper on her findings to several medical journals. Six months later, in the spring of 1980, her findings were published in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality
0: Weekly Report. Starko recognized that her research was lacking in some areas. She'd tested a small population, and the parents who provided her information were stressed and may have unintentionally given inaccurate answers. She identified all of these shortcomings in her paper
1: while stating that aspirin should be further evaluated as a possible cause of
0: Rye's syndrome. In spite of her own reservations, Starko's findings were widely reported upon. As soon as national newspapers printed that aspirin could be related to Rye's syndrome, parents stopped giving it to their kids. Meanwhile, the CDC pressed researchers to duplicate
1: Starco's findings linking Rye's syndrome and aspirin. A neutral team began a study in Michigan during the winter of 1980 to 1981.
0: But they were shocked to find that there were few cases of Rye's syndrome to study. They only identified 18 occurrences that winter. The winter prior had produced 83 patients. What had caused the drastic decline of RISE syndrome? And how would the small sample size affect the validity of the follow-up study?
1: In fact, this lack of cases provided the clearest evidence of a relationship between RISE syndrome and aspirin. The condition more or less disappeared overnight as soon as parents stopped giving their children the painkiller. And the few patients in their study had, in fact, received aspirin to fight mild illness
0: before they contracted Rye's syndrome. The disease had peaked in 1980 with 555 cases. In 1987, there were only 36. A decade later, only two cases were reported. Today. Instances of Rye's syndrome rarely appear in the United States. The disease has just disappeared.
1: Overall, doctors view Rye's syndrome as a story of triumph, but there are still many unanswered questions. We don't fully understand the role aspirin plays in this disease, so its cause is still officially unknown.
0: What we do know is that there was a deadly threat to children and the doctors and researchers from all over the world came together to find a cure. After two decades
1: of published papers, ongoing research, successful and failed procedures, and fatalities, they narrowed their focus on one unassuming, over-the-counter drug.
0: Their success rested on collaboration, communication, and continued efforts to advance their knowledge. But above anything else, they remembered that anything and everything could be a factor. Even a simple and seemingly safe chewable found in every bathroom and approved by every doctor. Thanks to their willingness to question what they knew, those researchers helped save countless lives in the past three decades.
1: Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. To learn more about RISE syndrome, in addition to the many sources we used, we found Keep Out of Reach of Children by Mark A. Largent, extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify
1: not only does spotify already have all of your favorite music but now spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like medical mysteries for free from your phone desktop or smart speaker
0: to stream medical mysteries on spotify just open the app tap browse and type medical mysteries in the search bar And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast
1: and Twitter at ParCast Network.
0: We'll see you next time.
1: Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Britt Ellis, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.